How many are new to Brooklyn Zen Center today? Welcome. We're very happy to have you practicing with us. And um, I mean, it's always a good time to come to practice. I, I don't think there's a bad time. But um, I think this is a particularly good time because we've begun a practice period here. Um, just a week or so ago, we um, had a ceremony that opened up our fall practice period. And that's what I'd like to talk with you a bit about today is practice. First, I'm going to have some water. So what is this thing called a practice period? Don't we practice all the time? Do we have to have a special two months to say we're practicing? Um, in a sense, we're always practicing. But coming together like this um, with our attention and intention focused on practice, we are able to deepen um, the roots of our practice. So before we came into practice period, before you came here today to practice, um, you were probably practicing in some way. You had some intention, and you were paying attention to your intentions, to your actions, in some way. And when we're done, at the end, kind of mid-December, the end of the practice period, um, we're not going to stop practicing either. But at that time, there'll be a little bit of a, um, a relaxation, a little bit of a, uh, as a yoga teacher, I think of shavasana, a time of relaxing and integrating, like a breath in and a breath out. And we will let... Um, the practice that we've done at this time, the attention we've given to um, what we do and what we say, our karma, um, we'll, we'll begin to observe the fruits of it in our life. So um, I like this form of practice period. Uh, I used to wonder about, like, well, why do we have to stop? This is great. Let's just keep going. You know. Um, but this period of integration afterwards is actually really important because it's when it becomes, the practice becomes not something out there, but it becomes a part of our lives. And also, it's a great opportunity to see when it's not part of our lives. So we get to observe for a while um, our habit life. Um, I would say habit might be the exact opposite of practice. And then we can re-enter practice again. Um, I am particularly uh, happy to have a seat or position in this temple called Head of Practice. Um, tanto, Tan refers to the platform in a zendo where people sit meditation. And we have a kind of a virtual Tan here. Um, and the Tanto is the person who sits on the ton with everybody else, but maybe has a little more experience. And that's just pretty much it. And I can't even say that's true, because I don't know all of your experience. Um, I have served in temples where I've been a tenzo. 
And that also is a practice position. But the practice is uh, primarily focused on the kitchen. And I have been the shika, and that's a practice position. And the practice is to attend to guests. But this kind of um, practiced, head of practice, or tanto, is um, putting practice up before my face at every moment. And that's how it is for those who sit on the tan. When you take your seat, your meditation seat, on the tan or in your life, um, there is a, a commitment to practice. And I'd like to get into that a little bit um, in a minute. Um, so I'm, I'm drawn to our style of practice in our, our family tradition of Soto Zen, which is practice with Sangha. Uh, I've been probably practicing something most of my life. Maybe all of you have too. But I started out um, life pretty early, uh, loving to move, loving to dance, loving to sing. And my mother wisely channeled that energy into dance classes when I was two. And I already loved to dance. That, that wasn't a question. But there was something about weekly coming together with a bunch of other two-year-olds, which probably was quite wild, um, with our tap shoes on. Um, but but the, the formality of coming together and um, learning together. And also, we were taught um, certain forms. So that in later years, I entered the ballet world, six or seven, which is a much more formal world. And, um, and when I finally went, like, ooh, so I was about six then, so about 30 years later, when I finally entered a zendo, something was extremely familiar to me. I had entered the zendo because I thought I was going to meditate, and I would find a teacher. And I had uh, very much of a, a view of this practice of meditation as you know, just me and my mind, and that's it. And there's a way, and that's kind of true. But I had no concept of this form, this formality that we have in Soto Zen. And, so, um, you know, if you enter a, those of you who have ever danced, and I'm sure other traditions, other arts have the same, especially group arts, have the same kind of formality. But, um, you know, what you learn is you arrive early. You're properly attired in clean clothes. If you're a, a girl, your hair's pulled back. Um, you don't have any bits of things hanging off of you. Everything's tucked away nicely. When you enter the studio, there's a kind of quiet graciousness that even a six-year-old can learn to practice. You take your place. You find your place at the bar. And you don't crowd anybody. And you, you don't take up too much space. And then the practice starts. The piano sounds. And for an hour and a half or two hours, you quietly uh, listen, observe, and then do. And uh, when it's over, there's a bow. And then you go off to giggle with your girlfriends or whoever. Um, so I entered a zendo for the first time. And I was like, oh, I kind of get this. I walk in. There's a gesture of respect to the space and to my place, my place at the bar, so to speak, only it was now baton, and to the people around me, and the kind of harmonization with the group. Um, I didn't mention that in dance, but um, and it, as you move through the class, 
um, you're given a place to be, and, and you're taught to not um, crowd up on other people or jump on them or take up too much space or go so slow you hold people up. So there's this gradual training, and it's done ever so quietly and nicely, um, of, of learning how to be in harmony with the people um, you're practicing with. At the same time, you know, there's this great personal expression and love of, of dance that, that comes out in each individual, quite individually. So same thing in a zendo. We, we sit in a kind of um, orderly way. We're considerate of the people around us. When we need to sneeze, we muffle our sneezes. Um, when we practice walking meditation, we try to maintain our, our space. And then uh, at the end, we do some bows and leave. And um, as a dancer, as a young dancer, I found that leading over into the rest of my life. Um, when I left the dance class, um, I consciously stood a little differently. Um, I had more of a sense of other people, um, how to relate in a kind of quiet way um, and, and acknowledge others. So uh, when I left my first uh, seven-day Zen meditation, or Sashin, uh, that was my question. It was like, this is wonderful. I want to do this forever. But they ended the Sashin and told me to go home. Um, I, Reb always has a way of saying, see yourself to the door, which I always find <laughs> a little bit abrupt. But uh, <laughs> I get the point. You know, now it's time for you to go from here. And so that was my question, exiting my first session. I remember asking someone as I walked to the parking lot, now what do I do? And so the next weeks and months and years were understanding how what I had, I had learned in practice I could apply. And um, so... I was a yoga teacher and driving a lot on California freeways. So one of the first ways that occurred to me was, oh, driving is a little bit like kinhin. I want to you know, be harmonious with the other vehicles on the road. I don't want to be zooming past somebody because I'm impatient with their speed or blocking somebody because I want to go a little bit slower. Um, I want to maintain a kind of even spacing. And, and, you know, and then when I get to where I'm going, I, I kind of want to be a little early, and I um, want to park carefully. So this kind of careful awareness um, did begin to become part of my life. When I went home and I wanted to eat, well, it, after Oriyoki, it seemed a little weird just to pile some food on a plate. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm kind of literal. I start very much basic. So I got my three bowls, not my Oriyoki bowls, but I got three bowls out. And I started to fill those bowls. And I remembered to, you know, say something of gratitude before and uh, at the end. It's, it's kind of this drip, drip, drip um, that comes to us as we practice. And we almost, even though I was thinking about it actively, it came to me. I didn't have to, you know, create or invent anything. It was just in each moment of my life, um, here was a way to practice what I had found really helpful in the seven days of a highly regulated um, meditation retreat. 
However, uh, that didn't just go on. It kind of started to wear off because habit took over and I wasn't um, necessarily practicing with other people who were trying to do the same thing. And I would forget. I would forget my intention. I would stop paying attention. And the speed and complexity of our lives, so different than a zendo, where things are uh, purposely simplified. A sashin, where everything is, is created to support attention and intention. Um, and a practice period, of course, is much the same. So, um, but that was very helpful because I wouldn't have noticed it prior to the sashin, but I definitely noticed it afterwards. So I headed back to another sashin. And I was encouraged to practice even more, with more attention, more awareness, because I knew now the challenge of making this my life. And I think that back and forth, for me, was very important. I know people who, they go to their first sashin, they enter the monastery, and they're there 20 years later. And that's a wonderful path, too. But for me, it was always, I always had this ending. You know, see yourself to the door, please. And heading home and having to re-enter my life. And um, the recognizing of how, how challenging it is to practice in our in the realm of our daily life was very helpful. Um, it engendered a certain amount of compassion for myself and for everybody else. So even you know, fresh from Sashin, entering this world with full of intention, um, kind of having that groove a little bit made, it was still very, very challenging. So I very much appreciate our way all Buddhist traditions don't practice this way. Some are more um, oriented toward hermit practice, practicing in a cave, practicing in the forest by oneself, which is also very beautiful. But I have deep appreciation for our way because I feel like this way of practice is um, we can live it each day um, unconditionally. We don't need to have an um, actual hut we can create our virtual hut. We can create our virtual tan. And we have sangha. So that's um, what I wanted to say about practice. And in this, um, in this particular practice period, the theme is karma. And probably, um, of all the objects of meditation one can be offered in the Zen tradition, or maybe even the Buddhist tradition, karma is the most profound, I think. And maybe the most difficult, um, first to just to understand what that means, what that word means, and then to uh, find a, a way of practicing with it. So that's uh, what I'd like to address today. So last week, Laura introduced us quite beautifully to karma, to um, how it's spoken of and um, kind of what it is in our life. And if I say anything um, that repeats that, that I want to do that. It's not to fill in any gaps that I thought were there. 
And then I want to read you a story that's really important to me. Right now, I think it's the most important story. And a lot of other people have thought so, too. So um, I am uh, in good company. Um, But just to reiterate, because maybe some people weren't here last week, um, first of all, karma, the word, is a Sanskrit word. Um, And karma, as, as an idea, as a concept, has been around for, you know, quite a long time predating the Buddha, and that different Indian traditions, spiritual traditions, have their own kind of take on karma. And the Buddhist understanding is not the same. Um, Buddha um, innovated in certain areas, and this is one of them. Um, So the word karma is a noun in in, uh, Sanskrit. And like all nouns, it has a root verb. So... It's interesting to study other languages because you get a kind of a glimpse of your own thinking process. But um, in English, I find we're very much of a noun culture. Although we like to do things, we're very active. Um, we we orient, orient ourselves towards nouns. Um, Sanskrit's very much of a verbal culture. So anytime you learn a noun in a Sanskrit class, they'll tell you the root verb. And the root verb for karma is kr, k are with a little dot under it. I, I'm not so good at rolling my tongue, but anyway. Um, and it means uh, many things. Any Sanskrit word means many things, but it means primarily to do, to make. Making is an important um, uh, definition. To accomplish. And um, in Buddhism, we think of it as Um, uh, action shaped by intention. So this was one of the innovations of Shakyamuni. Um, He didn't follow the more literal course of some other traditions, Indian traditions, of a kind of, you could say, tit-for-tat kind of explanation. Um, He understood that in addition to whatever actions or words or thoughts one had, there were intentions. And that shaped the karma um, in a different way. So just saying something did not you know, condemn you to some kind of horrible future you know, in, a, in a very literal way. Um, so that, that's important. And intention is very important. So when we chant the Heart Sutra, we chant about the five aggregates. And two of the five aggregates, or skandhas, come into play here. So intention is chetana. And um, this is, um, I believe, the second skanda. Chetana. Um, No, third skanda. So another um, word for intention is volition or will. And as we get into these words, for me, I get closer and closer to the ground where I can actually take up a practice. I, you know, otherwise, it's a bit abstract. So intention, well, I can intend to do something. But um, how do I work with that? So volition is a more active kind of, see, we're, we're just noun-oriented. 
but it's a, it's a more active form of a noun. Um, so this is a quote from the Buddha, from the Nibbadika Sutta, um, the Anguttara Nikaya. These are from the Pali tradition, some of the earliest sayings of the Buddha. I tell you, uh, he says, intention, I tell you, is karma or kama. Intending one does kama by way of body, speech, and intellect. So I take that as an invitation to be looking always at my intention. Um, now, intention's not enough, and I used to sort of struggle with this when it was first teaching was given because I thought, well, you know, if that person driving that truck over there runs me over, they may not have tended to, intended to, but I'm still run over. So we get into this intent and impact conversation that we're looking at today, and it's really important. But in terms of karma, um, there's a different kind of responsibility given to one who purposely runs someone over and to one who inadvertently does due to causes and conditions. So we're not, uh, Buddhism doesn't completely lift responsibility based on intention, but the karma is a little different. Um, so the Buddhist view of karma is a kind of a much more um, uh, flexible, fluid, and, and dynamic. And because of that, because there's not these set linear relationships, there's um, a lot of room for conversation. So in the various traditions of Buddhism, and even within the traditions of the Mahayana, or even within the traditions of Zen, um, this conversation goes on. And there are quite a few ways to view karma and we have a, a lovely reading list that has been shared with you all, um, or you can find it on the website. Um, so it is a question. I, I take karma as a question, not that it doesn't exist, but that how to look at it is a continuous question for me. With karma, um, so uh, this is the cause and effect relationship, there's something called karma phala. Laura talked about this last week in terms of fruit and seeds. Um, so karma, phala means fruit. And so the fruits of our karma are something also to look at. And this is, I think, the impact. So this is the interplay of intention and impact. So we have, we give rise to an intention. And then we watch that. So that's the place we start. But then we, we can't stop there. We have to see what the impact of our intention is because we need to be skillful in carrying out our intention. We need to, to practice skills. So we look and see, I intended to be kind to this person. Did they think I was kind to them? Um, maybe they didn't. Maybe there was something in the way that I spoke or acted that was not skillful and didn't convey my intent. So we're also responsible for that. And so it's a, it's a listening. There is a watching, and then there's a listening. Watching, listening. Karma, karma, fala. So 
that kind of interplay, I think, is really important in our moment-by-moment practice, whether we are on the ton or off the ton. On the ton or on the virtual ton. So another way of talking about the seeds is the way our mind is conditioned by our intention and um, by the results of our action and speech, but mostly by our intention. So if we have the intention to be kind, even if we fail at first, but we stick with that intention, we will create a mind that has changed shape. Perhaps previously that mind uh, being kind wasn't so important. You know, something else was more important. Uh, getting something we wanted or whatever. You know. So our minds are shaped. And they're shaped um, in a way um, by what we think and what we do, but also mostly by what we intend. And this kind of shape of the mind in Sanskrit is called samskara. So you've got kara in there, which is again kar. It's that same root as karma. And san um, means um, putting together. So it's a kind of a, you could imagine a sculptor with clay shaping and reshaping this clay dependent on mind and intent. Um, so some scars like that. And some skara is the fourth of the five skandhas. And these all connect together quite beautifully in early Buddhism and are a means of meditation and um, a source of great elaboration, which I won't go into today. Um, the first time that I remember hearing a talk on karma, it was given by my teacher, and it was in a yoga studio. And I just used to go once a week during a certain like six-week period, and he would teach um, uh, something. And uh, I remember he taught karma. And um, either I or someone asked him some question to, do, to, to define it more. And I remember him using the word vector. So I'm not a, a, a math science person, but I recognize that as a math science term. And I did look it up. But my sense of it at the time was vector. Oh, that kind of makes sense. Because I see a vector as an arrow. But it's an arrow pointing somewhere, but also moving somewhere. So um, this kind of intention is, is an energy. It's an actual energy. So the actual uh, mathematics and physics um, uh, definition is a quantity having direction as well as magnitude, especially as determining the position of one point in space relative to another. So I read that for the first time in the last day or two, and I thought, oh, that's perfect. That is, it's about, it, it's always interactive. We don't just have karma all by ourselves. And um, it is a way that the, the mind shapes itself in relationship to um, another in the conventional world where we see self and other, which we all live there. So that's, that's how we see. We may hear teaching um, to look uh, a little differently, to look at the world a little differently. But that's how we see it moment by moment. And so how we respond, how we enact in relationship to others is this um, 
this kind of vector. Also uh, from Latin meaning carrier or convey. Um, the other description he gave at the same time was it's like the mind shaping itself in a certain way and constantly reshaping itself. So karma is not a static thing. It's this dynamic process, as, as was said earlier. But I got an image of a brain, because I was thinking of the mind as a brain, which I don't anymore, but anyway, I did, of this brain that was constantly like an amoeba, you know, moving this way, moving back this way. You know, I'm a, I want that, I don't want that, you know. And constantly, every moment, changing its shape. And in the process of changing its shape, we um, then act, or speak, or produce a thought. And if we do all of that in an unexamined way, then we have uh, samsara, the world we all live in, the world um, of good and bad, the world of duality. So we have some really terrible things, like war. Um, devastation. But we also have some wonderful things. And um, one way that I like to personally teach this, um, uh, I taught it at Green Gulch a number of times. And Green Gulch is a San Francisco Zen Center, center in Marin County, California. It's by the beach. And they have an amazing garden there. It is absolutely gorgeous. And so I like to take people on retreat down there. And um, we practice walking around the garden and noticing the way that we're drawn. We're drawn. So um, I, we can go down there, and we practice kinhin, and everything's kind of very tranquil, and we're balanced. And then we begin to walk around the garden, and there is this beautiful, beautifully pruned plant. And my whole being reaches out to it. You know, that's that reshaping of the mind. I've gone from a kind of contained, quiet, tranquil, somewhat still um, shape to this, you know, this incredible um, movement. And um, then, of course, that could compel me to say something, which is like, oh, no, first I have a thought. <gasps> that's so beautiful. I want that. And then I might say that. That's really beautiful. I want that. You know, and then I might be tempted to go over and, and cut a branch off or something. You know, so that's kind of how it builds. But to be in a quiet enough place that you can watch that first changing of shape in the mind. Then we uh, do what's uh, an another Zen image is we get on the horse. We're riding the horse. It's not dragging us. So then we have an option of what to do next. So that's um, a kind of an example of practice. So now I notice we're getting late on time, and I want to read you my favorite story <laughs> and say a few words about it. And I was so happy to see that this favorite story is part of the reading list. So I am, I'm quite sure you're going to hear more about it. Um, so this is, um, I want to say a few things about it that I made notes on. I won't say all those things. So uh, this is called Bajong's Fox. 
and it is case number two in a koan collection called the Muman Khan or the Gateless Barrier. So koans, just to be very brief and simplistic, are stories from our Chinese tradition. Um, they're usually stories of interactions either between uh, students or a teacher and a student. And they're all about realization. And um, realization is not just some kind of mental, like, oh, I get it. Realization is a complete body, mind, and ex experience. And it usually comes in some kind of, uh, it often comes in these stories in some kind of sudden way. But this is a little bit of a slower version. So this is the story. I'm not going to read the very last part of the story, but the first part's pertinent. Um, oh, so let me just say Baijong. So Baijong's an important guy in Zen. Um, he's a, a Chinese master. Um, he lived in Tang Dynasty, which was 720 to 814. He was the Dharma heir, so his teacher was a very great Zen master, Matsu. Um, and his students were incredible, and one of them was Linji or Rinzai. So this is a very prominent master. He also um, is, is said to have created the, the original Shingi for Zen monasteries. Um, this is not necessarily uh, upheld by scholars, but um, that's the story. And um, he developed the first plans for monastic halls, for the places that Zen monks practiced. Um, see anything else important about this guy. Um, he is known to have said, a day without work is a day without food. So he supposedly introduced farming to monastic practice, which until then had uh, they relied on begging. And um, begging didn't go so well in Chinese society as it did in Indian. OK, so that's Baijong. And this is Baijong's fox. So what is it with this fox stuff? So this is what I found out about wild foxes. So I've always sort of had a sense of them as a trickster. Foxes were kind of tricksters. Um, and they seem to be shapeshifters. So this is a kind of a character from a, a, a shamanistic, maybe, um, time. So what I read today was during the Han Dynasty, the development of ideas about interspecies transformation had taken place in Chinese culture. The idea that non-human creatures with advancing age could assume human form. And then there's a various places that's presented. So just keep that in mind that this is about foxes turning into people. Um, and so the way this story uses it is a little bit different. Um, this is a quote. When a fox is 50 years old, it can transform itself into a woman. And women are often associated with foxes. And I'm not, foxes can be good and not so good. So I'm a little suspicious of this relationship with women. Um, when 100 years old, it becomes a beautiful woman, <laughs> or a spirit medium, or an adult male who has a relationship with a woman. <laughs> Such beings are able to know things at more than a 1,000 miles distance, um, they, they can practice sorcery um, and possess humans. Um, and when it is a 1,000 years old, a fox ascends to heaven and becomes a celestial fox. And so in Tang Dynasty, 
which is when this story is, they, um, uh, there, were fo there was fox worship. Um, people worshipped fox spirits and brought offerings to them. Um, so that's the fox. Here we go. Once, when Bai Zhang gave a series of talks, a certain old man was always there listening together with the, with the monks. When they left, he would leave too. One day, however, he remained behind. Bai Zhang asked him, who are you standing here before me? What a great Zen question. Who are you standing here before me? This, you find this question a lot. You can ask yourself that, too. The old man replied, I am not a human being. In the far distant past, in the time of Kashaba Buddha, so Kashaba was the Buddha before Shakyamuni. I can tell you more about that another time, but anyway, Buddha before Shakyamuni. I was head priest at this, mo this mountain, at this particular monastery. He was the abbot. One day, a monk asked me, does an enlightened person fall under the law of cause and effect or not? Is, is an enlightened person subject to karma? I replied, such a person does not fall under the law of cause and effect. With this, I was reborn 500 times as a fox. Please say a turning word for me and release me from the body of a fox. So here he's reversed this transformative story. Um, Bai Zhang, okay, Bai Zhang, okay, turning word. Okay, he, he then asked Bai Zhang, does an enlightened person fall under the law of cause and effect or not? Bai Zhang said, such a person does not evade the law of cause and effect. Such a person does not evade the law of cause. Now that does not evade, it's translated many, many different ways. My favorite way is does not ignore. And when I read that translation, I suddenly knew how to practice this. Does not ignore. So um, just to finish the story, and then in a moment to finish what I'm talking about. Um, hearing this, the old man immediately was enlightened. Making his bows, he said, I am released from the body of a fox. The body is on the other side of the mountain. I wish to make a request of you. Please, Abbot, perform my funeral as for a priest. And so the abbot did. And the monks were quite surprised and amazed and were kind of wondering, like, who's this priest that we're doing a funeral for? Because nobody was in the morgue and nobody was dying. Um, but they did go and they found the body of the fox and they cremated it and gave it a priest's funeral. Thank you. So um, what is it to ignore? So ignoring is is kind of worse than just not being aware of. It means you decide not to look at something. And so each moment of our life that we decide not to look at our life, um, then we become subject to karma. 
So just one more thing I want to say, um, and this is another whole talk, um, but uh, there is a saying in Zen, and I couldn't find the whole saying. I was trying to remember it. If anybody knows the words, uh, that'd be great. But there is a saying in Zen that um, basically all we can know is karmic consciousness, which is boundless. Boundless and something. Next time I find it, I'll tell you. Um, so it's not like we can exit this realm of karma. It's, that's all we can ever know. So what we do to practice with it is we watch it. We attend to it. We watch our intention changing shape. We watch the vector going this way and that way. And um, uh, another saying, I have these on t-shirts. <laughs> Faith in uh, cause and effect. We have faith that in watching this karma, um, we are realizing our life and the Buddha way. And that realization is another way of saying enlightenment, but I don't like to go with enlightenment. So um, we do this with a, with a faith that this is worth doing. And if we don't think it's worth doing, then at least we investigate. We don't ignore it. We don't ignore both our intention and our impact on the world. Um, we don't ignore the shape our mind is taking. And this can happen in the zendo, and it's a lot easier. A lot easier to come to zazen and sit in the zendo and have everything slowed down and quiet. But we can also take that into our life every moment, every waking moment. And yeah, sleeping, sometimes people do it too with dreams, but certainly every waking moment. So this is our practice that transcends periods. We don't, we don't have to stop at two months. We can um, continue. So uh, I thank you for coming. I thank all of you who are participating in this practice period. And I look forward to continuing to practice with you and uh, realizing with you the Buddha way. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.